go. Good morning. Welcome to episode seven of the podcast of the Peerless Review. Uh, my guest today is Nicholas Giordano. He is professor of political science at Suffolk Community College in Long Island, New York. He's worked for the Department of Homeland Security. He's faculty contributor at Campus Reform Online, written for the New York Post. He is also founder of the PAS Report, that's Political Analysis and Strategies, uh, host of the PAS Report podcast. Uh, you can follow him at PAS Report on Twitter. Nicholas, thanks for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Adam. So you've had sort of a roundabout uh, way into the world of academia. Tell us your story. How did you get here? What did you do before? Why did you make the switch? Well, my journey starts in, in college where I really took a liking. I, I've always had an interest in politics and government, and it's something that I had a passion about. So I decided that in college that I wanted to go into the political field. Now, when I went to college, there wasn't a lot of the handholding that may exist today. You had to figure things out for yourself and, and determine what you need to do. So ultimately, I got my first degree in education with English and history combined. And then I went for the master's in political science as I was doing construction and laying asphalt in the summers where it's 100 degrees outside. And then you're working with 300 degree asphalt is not the most pleasant thing but it did pay me well. And it taught me a work ethic. From there, it, you know, it was shortly after 9-11 that I, I started going to graduate school. It was about 2003. I got my degree in political science, but then I saw this huge need in Homeland Security. I mean, that's where a lot of our hiring was taking place. It was the largest bureaucratic expansion of government in, in the history of the United States. So I figured that would give me an edge over other people going into the field of political science, having that Homeland Security background. And that's where the journey began. So I started to adjunct as a professor, you know, teaching part time as I pursued Homeland Security, a company, private company picked me up uh, part time on a part time basis. See, a lot of people when they graduate college, they think that they're going to be making the six figures and job offers are just going to come their way. They don't realize that at the beginning, it is a struggle. Uh, there's a lot of rejection. You got to be prepared for that rejection. And then, you know, when an opportunity comes along, it may not be the opportunity you were hoping for. But as I was working part time, I quickly proved my worth. And I had a great mentor who owned the company, Stephen Kerr, who had decades of experience in emergency management and homeland security. And I, I learned a lot from him. From there, I started working uh, contracts all over the country, going to places that I never even heard of before, like Poplar Bluff, Missouri, which turns out to be an awesome area. And then I started to work for the New York State Division of Homeland Security and Emergency Services in the Office of Emergency Management, coordinating with the federal government, state government, and local governments. And at the same time, I was still doing the adjunct work, you know, one or two courses per semester. And it was shortly after uh, Hurricane Sandy here in New York. That was devastating. And when you're in Homeland Security and Emergency Management, it is one of the best career fields. I mean, you get to just meet interesting people, work with people at all levels of government, and it's phenomenal. And then when disasters hit, it's exhausting because you're going, you know, 12, 16 hours a day, and it, it takes a long time. So at the time I had a two-year-old, I think I saw him maybe an hour a day for like a three-month period. And a full-time position opened up at the college I was adjuncting at, and I said, I love teaching. I enjoy being with the students and actually educating them, not indoctrinating them. And so maybe let me just, you know, throw the dart at the wall and give it a shot. Let, let me throw in my application. And sure enough, they actually said, OK, come in for the interview. And I was actually I'm one of very few people, but I, I was able to beat out all the people with the PhDs and get hired on a full time tenure track position, which normally doesn't happen. One of the unique things I think about my experience is all that private sector work I had, whether it was in the construction industry, whether it was when I worked for the private sector emergency management company, I felt that that gave me a good basis. A lot of professors end up going through the college system, they get their graduate degree or PhD, and they never really operate in the real world. Everything's always about theory, where I actually could bring in 
not only the the theoretical and the textbook stuff, but I could also bring in what really happens, you know, the the things that happen behind the scenes within government and politics. And I had that unique experience compared to most. And I think that's what made me successful. That's a great story. Mine is not uh, dissimilar. I, I finished my undergrad in 2000, moved back to Rochester, New York with my girlfriend, um and then in august of 2001 uh my girlfriend left me and i was devastated i'm married to her now um but uh you know so you uh, came full circle yes and then one month after that september 11th happened and after i had gotten done with my undergrad i was working as an assistant manager at a barnes and noble um that was the job that i could find and uh Eventually, once I started grad school in 2002, I was working at another bookstore. A guy came in to pick up a bunch of MCAT review books, and I was helping him out. And I was like, why are you getting all these? He's like, I work at a writing center, and we're you know, helping some medical students. I said, okay. And I helped him out. He was like, you're in grad school. You should get a job with us. I said, all right. And that was kind of the beginning of my journey. Um, but definitely had that experience outside the academy, even though I, I sort of got on the, the traditional track after, after 2002. Um, so historically, you're in, you're in a political science department. Historically, political science has been um, one of the more ideologically diverse departments in universities. Um, political science has that reputation. Uh, economics departments have that reputation, history departments have that reputation. It used to be that in these departments, you would find people on the political right, on the political left, a good mix. Other departments like my department of English have been far, far gone for a a long, long time. I wonder, do you still have that experience? When you see the field of political science, do you feel like it's, it's sort of got a uniformity in terms of the political orientation of the people who work in that field? You know, I, I do think it shifted to the left over the course of the last few decades. Obviously, the left always had the majority in political science, too, but it, it was closer to even than in most other fields. Uh, the one thing I will say is that as political scientists and when we're teaching about government and politics, a lot of times you could you could put ideology, ideology aside when it comes to how governments work, right? I mean, it's just fact. If this is Congress, this is the roles of Congress. Article 1, Section 8 lays out a lot of the powers of Congress. That's indisputable. Now we could debate whether Congress's powers should be expanded or not, those sorts of things. But I think that a lot of the times political scientists are able to keep their ideology out of the classroom to a certain degree. I mean, obviously, there are times where your opinion is going to come into play, Now, that's where I would tell my students, that's my opinion. You don't have to believe what I believe. It's not my job to make you believe my what I believe. However, I think that the the field has changed. And what I mean by that is I think that gone are the days of the people that were experts in the field of political science. Gone are the days of the people that really valued and appreciated the idea of education. When I went to college, I had far left professors. I mean, I don't think anyone could go through a college experience without having some, but I had far left professors. But the difference was they always respected my opinion and me as a person. The difference was they always allowed me to speak and give my opinion as long as I could back up my arguments with the evidence. They would push, they, they would prod, they would try and, uh, you know, help me strengthen my arguments, even though they disagreed with my political opinion. And I think there was just this mutual respect for asking questions, for pushing back. That has changed. And and I find it with this new crop of teachers going into all these fields where they believe that just because they may have gone to college, got their grad degrees or got a PhD, that they can't be questioned, that they don't they know everything and they're going to be right on every single topic or issue that's discussed. Me, I'm someone that recognizes I've been teaching American government now for almost two decades. I still learn new things about American government. I don't know every aspect of American government, and I'm constantly evolving as I move along. So I I think that when we look at academia today, unfortunately, you're getting more ideologues than educators. 
And I don't berate any professor for having their own opinions. Everyone's allowed to have, they're entitled to their opinions. However, when you're shutting students down because they disagree with you, because they take a position that you may not, not like, that's not education. That's not the college experience that I was afforded. That's a great answer. I wonder, so as a political scientist, it seems to me that the university as an institution has become increasingly cozy with the state. Um, and, and what I mean by that is it almost starts to seem like the, the institution of the American university plays a role in political life. Um, I'll give some examples of, of this. For example, the tight knot between federal uh, funding and student loans and the sustenance of public universities, um, the pipeline of uh, sort of experts, newly minted experts from the university into advisory roles in the government and things like this. Of course, all this said, there is no formal political role for the university in, in the implementation of, of American government and the state. Should we consider at this point, like universities to have a political function in American life, um, in addition to the old educational one, which is kind of going away? No, they should solely be educational institutions. You know, we do see this revolving door of government officials into academia and vice versa. Now, I'm someone I don't mind that because if you have, let's just say, a former Department of Defense official that was in the Department of Defense for 30 years, well, they could bring valuable experience to the classroom and explain, you know, what what their what they saw, what what they did, their job, how government functioned, the interactions between all levels of government. At the same time, though, one of the biggest problems I have with academia is, well, several fold, but the grant funding. I think the grant funding is a big problem because grant funding has become completely weaponized for ideological purposes. So a lot of times, you know, I'm not going to get into nitty gritty of formula grants here on this podcast It would bore your listeners. But if you look at how the formula grants are developed, a lot of times the government already has the answer they want. They already have the answer they're expecting from the research. And so now I'm going to apply for this formula grant. The institution is going to get money to conduct a study where we all know the outcome already because you can't deviate from that outcome. If you do deviate, then you lose the grant funding. So it's gotten really political when it comes to the grant funding aspect of it. And the stuff that sometimes is grant funded is just beyond me. You know, we've spent, I think it's something like close to a million dollars the University of Kentucky on how cocaine impacts the sex drive of Japanese quail. Now, <laughs> not sure what the hell that has to do with anything, but that's where grant funding is going. So that's a problem. I also think that if you look at the college experience, the experience is not what it used to be. I mean, you have these overtly political institutions now, because as you rightly stated, they are moving political that are implementing speech codes, they're determining who could speak at campuses and who can't speak at campuses, what opinions are allowed, which ones aren't. And they're not preparing students in any way to face the real world once they graduate. I mean, let's be honest, you know, we spoke at the beginning where when I graduated, I was at a loss, you know, what do I do now? No, there was no real guidance and you had to figure it out for yourself. There was no six figure income and offers weren't being thrown at me. And it's a harsh period, right? I mean, you know, you constantly, you're putting your resume out to all these different places. Nobody's calling you back when they do call you back and then you get rejected. You know, it's a blow to your ego. It's a blow to self-esteem. And yet on college campuses now, we're saying that, you know, we have safe spaces where, you know, anything that you deem what's offensive, which in this day and age, if someone disagrees with me politically, they find that offensive. So we're going to try and shelter and shield these students, not preparing them for the real world, not preparing them for the bosses that they may have, the, the supervisors they may have that may not be so nice, that, that are going to yell and scream and push them. You know, so I think the institutions have failed there. And then if you look at the staff of institutions, and this is something most people never talk about, you look at the administrative staff of almost Every single institution, the administrative staff has increased 
dramatically. Yet the full-time teachers have decreased dramatically at the same time. And that tells you it's not really about education, uh, what we're witnessing. It's about an institution, a bureaucratic institution. And to me, that's a sham. Like, I don't think you go to any college or university throughout the United States. And I wonder how many parents know that the odds are their child is being taught by someone that teaches part-time. And would anyone, any parent in their right mind want their child, you know, in elementary school or middle school or high school to be taught by a part-time teacher? It's not to say that the adjuncts don't do a great job. I know plenty of adjuncts. They're awesome teachers. Unfortunately, the colleges realized how much money they could save by hiring adjuncts. And at the same time, it's not like they're saving the money. They're just expanding administrative positions. I mean, we all know how human resources departments have expanded. There's now like 42 diversity officers that you can't cross. And, you know, Title IX is sitting there glaring in the background that tries to keep everyone in fear and compliance. It really is a disaster in academia right now. So... Yeah, I mean, you remarked on the the thickness of the administrative staff layer of the university, and I want to talk a little bit about that. But I, I do also want to talk about um, sort of the the uh, the culture of fear that's imposed through Title IX and uh, the diversity officers. Um, how many, what does that look like at your school? You know, do you guys have an office of DEI or? Of course we do. Every college at this point has an, you know, a DEI office, Title IX officers on campus and everything. It's, my college is far better than most colleges out there. I will say that. However, we have had instances, you know, wrong pronouns being called or whatever, uh, where Title IX complaints have come up, and there are some legitimate Title IX complaints, but a lot of the Title IX complaints is like, you know, come on, re- really, that's what we're going with? And it's something, you know, as a college professor, you have tenure. Everyone believes that tenure is this uh, magical thing where you can't get fired, and, and that's not necessarily true. It makes it more difficult to fire you. You may have to go through a process of arbitration, and whatnot. But tenure only protects you from talking about controversial subject material in your classrooms, having the academic freedom to bring up controversial issues. However, it does not protect you if a student perceives something that you grieve them in some sort of way. And that's where it becomes a big problem. Now, in my classroom, I I kind of laid down the law the first day go in there like a dictator. I'm not, a, I'm, a, I'm a very nice guy, but I go in there like a dictator and I, I display my standards and I tell my students, you know, if you're someone that's easily offended, drop my course today because I make it my mission to offend every student at least once during the semester. If I don't offend them in some sort of way, then I'm not doing my job. And it's because I want my students to be able to hear all sides of an argument, even ones they disagree with and find offensive, this way it better prepares them for their arguments. In any event, Uh, My college is a lot better when it comes to these types of diversity issues, but we're now starting to see it start to infect the learning objectives, the the student learning outcomes, where diversity statements are having to be put in, where, you know, one of the ones um, uh, that's coming down the pike is, you know, just basically acknowledging slavery and the impact it has and how minorities uh, discriminated against and all that sort of thing. Now, as political science, this is the beauty about my campus is I get to teach what I want. And my learning objectives are could equally match whatever they want the learning objectives to be. I talk about slavery in my class. So therefore, I I spoke about it, check the box. Uh, However, in other colleges and universities, it's about this idea of equity, we're starting to see creep up that you have to teach that the United States is a place that was born in racism and slavery, where it's born with inequities. And therefore, we got to push this theory of equity to make sure everyone has an equal outcome, which anyone with a brain knows that that's impossible, that you're never going to have equal outcomes. Um, And and I think that's the problem. See, as professors, we do have academic freedom, but we still got to stay within the learning objectives. 
Now, I'm someone that's smart enough to know how to get around that to a certain degree, uh, but it's only a matter of time before I see it coming to every college and university unless people start pushing back, unfortunately. There, we know academia is filled with a lot of people on the far left, but there's more conservatives than people realize on college campuses. However, they are so fearful that many of them don't speak up. So we had a situation at our college, I'm not going to get into the specific details, uh, but we all had to take a vote on, you know, new academic standards coming down the pike. And I think there was like four of us that opposed these new types of standards out of the, you know, 40 people in the department that supported it. And it was just, you know, these people, you know, half of them don't agree with what's coming down the pike, but they do it because they don't want to be targeted. They're afraid that if they speak up or they speak out, that they're going to be targeted, they're going to be ostracized. And a lot of times what happens, especially in English departments, I'm not an English department, but I know in English departments, if you come out with an alternative point of view, you almost treat it as a leper. Like you're, you're banished to the far end of the hallway in your office away from all the other faculty members and you're not included in certain activities that they're doing. And, you know, you don't even want to go to the faculty meetings. Luckily, I work at a college that doesn't do that, but there are many that do. Yeah, um, I had a have you had a Title IX complaint yet? I had one. It was not. No, fun. thankfully, no. Um, so one thing that has often struck me and when we talk about the thickness of the administrative staff level of the university is that in some ways the university and the, the losing control of it from a faculty perspective mirrors the loss of control of the American public in government. It seems that as the administrative state grew, the American people to some degree lost control of the, the uh, uh, political power that's afforded to them under the, uh, the dictates of, of the Constitution. Um, the university seems to be the same way. It seems to me that now if, if the, the administrative and staff layer is so thick, it's, it's almost like um, the idea of shared governance or um, a faculty role in, in actually running the institution is something of an illusion. Do you think that, that um, that the the decline of any institution has to do with the the the, the size of its administrative um, cast. A hundred percent, and it's not just in in college level. If we look at K through twelve as well, so most people may be shocked to find out that over fifty percent, the majority of employees of any given school district, are actually administrative and staff. It's not teachers. Now we're, we're, we're sitting here and, you know, universities and colleges and K through 12 schools, we're, we're supposed to be talking about education and, and what education really means. Well, do we really care about education if we have more administrators than teachers out there, or do we want the administrative state? And that's where you get into what you just said was this big bureaucratic outgrowth of administrative staff. And if you don't have academics, that are leading the charge in a college or a university system, the focus and the priorities aren't going to be on academics. I mean, you look at around the country, you pick any college you want. The odds are that the college president probably never taught in the classroom in their lifetime. Now, the whole point of going to college, well, there's two points. One is the classroom experience, getting the education that you need so that you could get the piece of paper that doesn't have as much value as it used to have. The second important aspect of college is networking, right? Starting to build out your future network so that it could help you succeed once you graduate. Now, if you have the, most of the administrative staff never actually teaching in a college classroom, what do they know about the classroom? What do they know about the student body? And yet these are the ones that are almost making policies in regards to what's being taught in the classroom and, and how the college operates as far as teaching goes and the standards. It, it, it's like Congress almost. So look at it that way. You have all these politicians that most of them could never hack it in the real world. 
And yet they're the ones that are making all the decisions in regards to farming. So you have the urban centers that have the biggest congressional representation simply based on population. And those urban centers are determining farming practices for rural communities, even though they don't know how to farm at all. It, it doesn't make any sense. Same thing with education, you know, state, local, federal government, all makes policies in regards to education and standards and all these sorts of things. Well, how many of those people making the policies have ever been in a classroom, not being a student, but as someone that understands the classroom, the problems of the classroom? So you have this bureaucratic bloat that to me is completely unnecessary. And that's why academia has deviated from its, uh, its original mission. It's no longer about educating students. It's about compliancy, right? I mean, that, that's what it is. Let's check the boxes. Let's be obedient. Let's be compliant. Let's not ruffle any feathers and everyone will be happy if that's the case. So when it comes to government, there's some theories about how we could rein in what gets called the administrative state. Um, some, some key court rulings, if, if they happened right in the next few years, could significantly limit the regulatory force of some of these unelected agencies. So there's a mechanism in government to restrain that. But it, there doesn't seem to be a mechanism in the university to restrain it. There's no sort of court that could save us from the uh, bugmen in the DEI office. You know, um, there's there's no there's no way to stop the university from hiring another associate dean of online education or whatever it is. So. Is there a way, you know, that do you see a way that we can sort of call the herd to to cut off some uh, some of that fat and get back to a balance in the university that would allow faculty some some power in determining um, how the institution works? Well, that's the amazing thing, because it's not ideological amongst faculty members, right? I mean, you have faculty members that are mostly to the left and you have some to the right, but yet they agree on one common thing. All faculty members will say that the administration is too big, that, that it's so bloated and we need to do something about it. Unfortunately, most faculty members remain silent and you have several different types of faculty members. So you have those that either are adjuncting or maybe on a grant line, a temp line, and they don't want to ruffle any feathers because ultimately their goal is to get a full-time position. And if you're an older adjunct that's just doing it in retirement, you really don't care about what happens to college. You just want to teach your classes, get paid, and, and that's it. Your day's over. Then you have the full-time faculty, those that have got their tenure, they got all their promotions, well, they begin to take a hands-off approach because all they need to do is teach their classes and that's it. They're done. They, they got their tenure. They did everything they needed to do. And so now they take a back seat. And then you have the middle ground. Now, the, the, the middle faculty members, that's where we see a lot of them who they'll complain to each other, but they'll never voice those concerns even louder unless you're someone like me who likes to voice concerns. Uh, but they, they, a lot of times, will remain silent. In fact, we're going through at my college a new contract negotiation now. A contract expired. We're going through a contract negotiation. Our salary increases have been abysmal. They, they haven't been keeping up with inflation at all. We've given a lot to the college when it comes to things like health insurance, where we have enormous co-pays now. We have to put in more for our paycheck each one. And we've given a lot back. We've increased students in the classroom of how many we have to teach at a particular class and then the online presence and whatnot, because that's their cash cow now. And so one of a lot of our concerns is we need to get a good increase in pay because we are not even, we weren't keeping up with the cost of living to begin with over the course of the last four years. Now with inflation through the roof, now we're really underwater and Long Island is an expensive place. It's not cheap to live here. So it creates problems. And we had someone that will remain nameless say state is one of the people that's actually on the union. We should be thankful we have jobs. I'm sitting there like, and you're a union rep? I, you know, I remember... <laughs> But that's the difference. You know, gone are the days of the uh, Jimmy Hoffa. I'm not, you know, saying that Hoffa was always great, but gone are the days of the union bosses being pitbulls. 
and pushing back and, and fighting back. I mean, my union president's actually pretty good compared to most of them out there. But amongst the faculty members, like the last two contracts that we've gotten have been horrendous. What did they do? Well, one of the contracts increased the number of classes adjuncts could teach. Well, that doesn't help us out. I mean, that basically states that you're never going to hire another full-time professor again, because how do you justify it if adjuncts could teach more classes? And the other contract was terrible, but yet everyone support, not everyone, most people supported it because we should be thankful we have jobs. And they're afraid that if they push back against this big bureaucratic administrative staff, well, then they're going to come back and say, you know, all right, we're going to have to lay people off and tenure doesn't protect layoffs. And, you know, they're going to start making threats where it's like, no, you have to have courage and stand up for your profession. You know, it's funny because all these people in academia always rail about, you know, big business, how employees are treated and whatnot. And yet they do the same exact thing of what they're railing against that they manipulate. And it's always mind boggling to me that more professors that are from the left don't speak up and speak out against this practice. Well, this is one of the shocking things is, is, you know, you see university presidents and mission statements starting to include social justice and equity as, as one of their big things. Meanwhile, an adjunct gets, well, what, three, four, five thousand dollars per course, yep. right? Um, and so in order, let's think, to make, to make $40,000 a year, they're having to teach 10 classes a year. That's before taxes. Correct. And they're going to three or four different colleges to teach those 10 classes per year. Right. And then these the 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 same institution that is expanding the reliance on these people they have running all over the city to different campuses doing 10 courses will talk to you about social justice. It's uh it's it's remarkable. It is. And let's face it, the adjuncts don't do nearly as much as the full-time. So as a full-timer, I have to have office hours. I have to sit on campus and, and college-wide committees. I have to present. You know, th there's a lot we have to do as full-time faculty members where adjuncts don't have to do those things. Well, if you're not meeting with students and engaging with students and participating in student activities and the clubs that exist on the college campus, well... Again, what type of relationship are you building? When I went to college, I built strong relationships with a lot of the political science faculty that I still keep in touch with to today. They, they, you know, they're still resources to me. They're part of my network. But you're not getting those real relationships. And I don't care what level of college you're in, whether it's community college, a state institution, or the Ivy League University, it's a problem on all campuses that the, the administration has figured out a way to scam by using adjuncts and almost engaging in, in a slave-like type, um, slave labor type level. So I wonder, you're a guy like me on the political right. Um, in Texas, we do not have a faculty union um, at public universities. What's your take on, on unionized uh, faculty labor? Well, I, I do believe in unions. I think unions are extremely important, not just in academia, but throughout society. I actually like unions. Are they, did the unions hurt themselves by pushing a little too far on, on a lot of the issues? Yeah. Did the unions hurt themselves by becoming overtly political? And the answer is yeah. Uh, they made their bed with Democrats. And the amazing part is that the Democrats constantly screw <laughs> the unions. And it's the truth. So again, here where I'm at in uh, Long Island, New York, it's a, a Suffolk County executive is a Democrat. We had a Democrat legislature for years. The New York state governor's office obviously has been Democrat for years. The New York state legislative body has been Democrat for years. And this is the, the funding flow all comes from these entities. And our funding gets worse and worse. Our contracts get worse and worse. And at some point you have to say, well, you know, you're constantly touting supporting Democrats and Democrat candidates. Well, what have they done for us? What have you done for me lately? If anyone knows Eddie Murphy Raw from the 1980s, they'll get it. What have you done for me lately? And the reality is nothing. So what's it about? Now, the good news with my union is it's not overtly political. My union understands that there are conservatives, there's Republicans, independents, libertarians, Democrats, progressives, far left nuts. That, that they have this huge umbrella 
And so they don't get as involved in the uh, social issues, the social justice stuff that most universities and colleges do. It's not to say they don't get involved in any, but it was a couple of years ago where the union realized that, you know, at the community college level, it's a diverse group that you're talking about. It's not like that group think bubble mentality that exists at universities throughout the United States. Our student body is wildly diverse. We have students that can't afford to go to, to the four-year institutions. We have students that may be homeless. We have students that may have children at a young age. We have returning adults, you know, that they, they never went to college. And now 20 years later, they're 40 years old and they want to get back into the classroom to get the degree. We have people that are, have careers already and they're looking just to advance within their careers, get the continuing education, professional development. So our student body is diverse. They're more in touch with reality. And one of the reasons that we don't see the high number of Title IX complaints that private institutions do is because our students don't have time to waste on sitting there filing Title IX complaints. They, they don't have, they know how life actually works. They know in the real world, there is no Title IX. You're going to encounter a-holes. You're going to encounter nasty people. You're going to encounter some great people. And you have to learn how to deal with all those different types of people. So my union, for the most part, has been relatively free from, let's just say, the uh, Randy Weingartner's Union, you know, the American Federation of Teachers, NYSET, the New York State uh, Teachers Union. It, it's much better than those. And I think that, again, given the lack of increases, given the lack of benefits, given how everything's getting worse and worse, I think more union members have opened their eyes. And it's not just the academic union. I mean, you know, if anyone wants to realize, well, why did all these blue collar union workers support someone like President Trump? Well, there's a reason behind that. And it's because they've been getting shafted by the Democrats for so long. It's just that the party bosses in the unions and the, and the Democrat Party have this cozy relationship. Yeah, they start taking you for granted if if you if you take keep taking the crumbs that uh, that they give to you. Well, again, I think it's the, the idea that you now have in most unions throughout the United States, you now have union leadership that wants to be friends with the politicians. You go back 40, 50 years ago, the union leadership wanted to be adversarial with the politics, not nasty, but they wanted an adversarial relationship for the simple fact that the union leaders are fighting for the union members. And so you can't necessarily be friends with those politicians because then you make sweetheart deals behind closed doors and that's not going to benefit your union membership. Yeah, you get more from the politicians when they're not sure if uh, they have your vote, you know? Correct. <laughs> oh my, you're talking common sense. Right. God forbid. Um, so you mentioned earlier the, the sort of devaluation of the credentials that the university issues community colleges. Sometimes you'll see people who are like, no community colleges is the way of the future. You know, Barack Obama used to talk very favorably about community colleges. So did Trump. Um, uh, they have a reputation as uh, uh, providing more practical hands-on education that can be used and directly put to work in, in the work world. What's your take on community colleges? Do we need more of them? Is the two-year degree a more valuable degree at this point than the four-year university bachelor's degree? Um, what's, what's the future of the community college in the United States? Well, I think higher education at a whole is going to undergo this major transformation within the next five years. And I think that the private four-year university system is pretty much finished. What's going to, out of the ashes, what, what will remain is the Ivy League schools, the state universities, and community colleges. All, most, not all, but most of the mid-tier, four-year private universities, um, they're, they're finished. They're, they're not going to be able to survive the cataclysm that's coming because it's, there's two things happening. First of all, the age demographics of the United States there's a decline in college age population here in the United States. So we were already, and that was something that was known 10 years ago, we were already projecting less students in college. Therefore, all these colleges have to compete from this less student body. 
that's a problem for private universities that are really expensive. And then because students really aren't learning, the corporations, the companies, and everyone else with two brain cells knows that the piece of paper that students are getting are not all that valuable anymore, the four-year piece of paper. They're not that valuable anymore. Why? Because it's really difficult to fail out of college. Like, it's really difficult. You know, some may fail out, you know, their first year because they just didn't go to classes. They were young. They were dumb. They wanted a party. But once you get college down pat, I mean, if you fail college, that's on you. And so you look at it, everyone just gets cycled through. There's nothing really that's being done in any special things that are being done. And the four-year universities, you have a lot of the professors that don't even teach the courses. They want to do their research. They may teach one or two courses, but it's mostly scams, adjuncts, and grad assistants teaching those courses. And the students aren't really learning much. I mean, you know, and I think that's the problem. What nobody's ever told these students, I tell them in my classroom, when you enter college, you have to start preparing to get a job when you graduate. Like that's like the most important thing. And the reason it's the most important thing is because you don't want to be laying asphalt when you have a master's degree. It's not that pleasant. And so a lot of times these colleges will say, well, you need this piece of paper to get the job, to get a job, but they never prepare the students to actually get that job. And that's why I tell my students, networking is critical. Network with other students, with your professors, with people that come to speak on campus, meet them, introduce yourself to them. Internships are key. And nobody likes working for free or for a small stipend. However, internships are critical, not for the menial things you may do on the internship, but more for the connections that you make on that internship. But more importantly, I tell my students, like once you're done with the internship, that's not the end of the relationship. Keep out, keep reaching out to them, email them. How are you? You know, what's going on? Is there anything I can help you with? Because these are people that can help you get a job when you graduate. And you look at it today. Well, I'm not working for free. I don't want to do that. And nobody talks about the value of internships. Now, if I have two candidates coming to work for me, and one of them has all these internships and they have the degree. The other person has the degree and they have all these extracurricular activities, but they have no practical professional experience. Who am I going to hire? I'm going to take the one with internships. I don't care what college they come from. I want the one that has experience and actually knows people in that field. So I think nobody tells the student body that. Nobody tells the student body here in New York, it's all about civil service exams for a lot of government positions. Well, great. If you want to take a civil service exam, the time to take it is not once you graduate, because guess what? You're going to be on a list for like three or four years before you get a phone call for that position. That's how long the lists are. You take the civil service exams while you're in college. This way, once you graduate, then you're going to be getting the phone call. Nobody ever gives this practice. I don't want to say nobody, but most students don't receive this practical advice. And again, it's not partisan. Nobody receives this practical advice. And the whole point of going to a four-year university and graduating from a four-year university is to get a job. Well, if they're not helping you get a job, why are you going to go into such debt? And I think the university screwed themselves that way. I also think they screwed themselves in other ways as well. If we look at the cost of tuition. So if I am majoring to become a teacher then you have a major to become an engineer. Well, the engineer is going to make far more money in their future earnings than a teacher is. So why are we charging the same tuition rates based on how many credits they're taking as opposed to based on the degree they're getting? The, the value, the investment of a four-year private university degree is no longer worth it anymore. And that's we've seen this failure of students graduating, you know, $150,000 in student debt to become a social worker. Like that doesn't make sense. And a lot of these students aren't taking the time to look at the Department of Labor's uh, future statistics of where's the job growth going to be and where are we going to see job decreases? You know, I'll have students that are majoring in something. I'm like, you may want to do a double major in that because, you know, 
we're not really going to need too many accountants going forward. The CPA, that's different. But if you're looking at regular accounting, that's kind of being taken over by software. And so maybe you want to look into forensic accounting or maybe you want to look to become a CPA instead. But they don't look into their job growth or, or the job decline that's going to be happening in the future. And if these universities can't prepare students for the real world, then what's the point? You think that our job is going to be taken by software? Yeah, because we're morons. <laughs> our field is a bunch of morons. And I realize this throughout the coronavirus where, first of all, let's be honest here. I don't sit there. I don't hide, hide my disdain for distance education. Most of my colleagues know my disdain. My college is well aware of my disdain for distance education. Distance education is not education. I'm pretending to teach as students are pretending to learn. Let's just call it what it is. Um, I, I think that a student taking my course online, sitting in their bedroom, on their bed, in their pajamas at 12 o'clock uh, in the afternoon, well, that's not teaching them much for the real world, is it? And basically, it's, okay, let me look through the PowerPoint. Let me listen to the recorded lecture. Let me answer the discussion questions. There's no real back and forth. Yeah, we could type things all day long, but let's be honest, that's not really teaching. So I, I think that as we uploaded all of our stuff into the distance education uh, platforms that exist out there, whether it's Blackboard or D2L or whatever it is, well, now they have all our stuff. They have my recorded lectures. They have my PowerPoints, they have my discussion questions, they have my responses to the discussion questions. Technically, do they really need me? And what's the difference between an online course at my college or, you know, Udemy or Coursera or something else? What is the difference? And, and so you had a bunch of faculty members that are like, oh, I really like this online stuff. And I'm like, you do realize you're making your job irrelevant. If YouTube could teach our children, if YouTube and Google could teach everything to our kids, why do they have to pay me good money to walk into a classroom? Why? And they didn't see it. So we're pushing ourselves into irrelevism with this whole push for online education. Now, I'm not going to... The one thing I'll say about distance education, if it's graduate level or above, it's a completely different story. It is effective at that level because you have professionals, people that are mature taking these courses that know how to engage, that have been in the professional environment. But an 18-year-old, when I was 18, if you told me to log on to a computer to take, good luck with that. I'm not doing it. And I think that's how a lot, the failure rate in online classes is 10 times higher than it is in the classroom. And the reason it's 10 times higher is not because the student is dumb and doesn't know things and can't do the work or didn't study. It's because they simply stopped showing up they stop logging in and they stop doing the work. So that's why they fail at a higher rate. But colleges love this, right? Because if you get an increase in failures, well, now students have to repeat those courses. And so now they have to pay again to take that same exact course. So it makes the colleges a lot of money. My college doesn't particularly like distance education. It feels that it devalues education. At the same time, they say, well, we still got to stay competitive because we don't want students in Suffolk County going to, I don't know, the University of Vermont to take an online course where they're sitting in their bedroom. So I understand that we're trying to do it to be more competitive, but we are now teaching students less than ever before. They're learning less than ever before. And so they're going to be even more unprepared for the real world when they get into it. And let's face it, a lot of the point of college and going to college is not necessarily what you learn in the classrooms. I mean, yeah, there's courses I remember. There's courses I couldn't remember who taught them or what I learned in those courses. It's the campus experience of, of being there in person, speaking to people, meeting with people, interacting with people, that that's far more enriching than certain classes you're going to be taking. Yeah, I taught the state of Texas required that universities hold some face-to-face -face classes all through the pandemic. And obviously a lot of teachers didn't want to teach face-to-face. -face. Um, I did, so that was a boon, you know? So I was teaching face-to-face -face all through. Those were some of the best students I've ever had during that time because they were the kids who were like, yeah, I just can't do the online thing. I don't want to lay on my bed 
with, you know, my Facebook tab active and you talking in the background, you know, um, they were really engaged students. But um, I think part of it on the faculty front is you have a lot of faculty who are lazy and they'd rather just stay at home, right? Like they, that's why they like online. Um, yeah. And, and I felt, uh, you know, as someone, first of all, I'm a people person. Okay. I can't shame my students in an online environment. I could only shame them in the classroom. And I love <laughs> to shame my students, but I'm a people person and that I enjoy the give and take. I enjoy the discussion and you can't have that online, but even in my online classes. So I'm sitting there and I'm teaching, you know, let's say zoom and I have 30 students and five of them have their cameras on and the other 25 I'm looking at black boxes. Like that's humiliating as a professional. That's humiliating to me. The ones that did have their camera, one class, someone's cooking dinner. <laughs> Another class, this person's driving on the road. I'm like, you know, you may want to stop what you're doing and pull over and actually take the course that you registered for, as opposed to driving while I'm teaching. Another one, the um, a, a dog walked in and had one of those satellite dishes. So it must've just gotten <laughs> neutered. Like it was hysterical. I found that funny because I had to stop and laugh at that. But again, I'm looking at it and I'm like, I'm a college professor. And what has my profession devalued into? So yeah, like, and I find it disgraceful that you do have a lot of these lazy professors that simply don't want to return to campus. Now I know some professors that actually had health conditions, and I completely understand that. But let's be honest here. You have a professor. They don't even know how to work the photocopy machine. They're like 70 years old. Now they're teaching six, seven courses online. Right. Come on now. Come on. <laughs> Let's just be honest. You know, we got to be honest with our own profession. Right. You can't work a photocopy machine. You shouldn't be able to teach six, seven classes online where there's no way in hell that you know how to work those platforms. <laughs> Yeah, there was uh, probably some low quality teaching being done in the spring of 2020. There is. Um, and another scam is the textbook companies that will provide you your entire course package. They'll provide you the materials, the PowerPoints, the, the, the exams, the answer keys. And I'm sitting there like, no, that's my job as a professional, as a professor. That's my job. I created my course. I'm the one that should determine what the tests are. I should be the one creating that. I should be the one creating the assignments, the PowerPoints. Like we have great jobs. We should show a little appreciation for them, not be thankful that we have these jobs. We've earned these jobs, but we, we should want to actually respect the profession that we're in. Mm -hmm. Nicholas Giordano, it's been a, it's been a great conversation. You got a lot of interesting ideas on higher ed. I hope that you're right, that we see the uh, radical change that you uh, foresee in about five years. I think that you will be. Um, thanks again for talking with us. Well, thanks for having me. I enjoyed the discussion.